Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, people that make it. And occasionally, ourselves, I'm familiar with We're starting a little bit late, so I'm going to try to speed it. So this, this is just going to be a thing I do from now on. I do various things at free thing. I'm excited to be here. Matt Welch is here. Michael right. Moynihan of Vice News is here. Matt Welch is the editor at large of Reason, Reason Magazine. That's what he does over there. And, and we have an exceptional, remarkable guest who is back for a third tour. A third because time. We, we had unfinished business. If this was a film, that's what we would call this. Jane <laughs> yeah. Coaston of the New York Times. Now of the New York Times. Yes, now of the New York Times. That's right. Formerly of Vox. Yes. The, the host of the opinion podcast, The Argument, the rebranded, I think I it's, it. it's fair to say, right? Yeah, it's very yeah. good. Yeah, it's been okay. good. It's been good. Well, con- yeah. congratulations on the move. Um, Thank you. Th- can can you tell us like why the move, Jane? Um, uh, and are you are you happy? Are you fulfilled? I'm extraordinarily happy and very <laughs> fulfilled. Um, well, there's a famous okay famous in college football lore story because I realize that sometimes I say like a famous college football story and people are like I don't know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. But and this is perhaps apocryphal, but allegedly when someone asked Bear Bryant why the legendary Alabama coach why he took the Alabama job, he responded, perhaps. When mama calls, you come running. And when the New York Times was like, we would like you to host a podcast, I was like, yes, let's do this. Especially because I think that this was the best way to get at asking the questions that I'd always wanted to ask people and a platform where people were more willing to be asked by it. Because one of the things about the Times, which I knew before, but you see now, is that like a lot of people have opinions about the New York Times But a lot of the people who have opinions about the New York Times still really want to talk to the New York Times because they recognize what a platform it can be. And that gets into one of the funnier things that you'll see people who like are going hard in the paint on the Internet. And then you talk to them in actual Mm. life, like for my show. And they're like, what I actually meant was. And I'm like. Like, why are you coming? Like, no, like, you gotta, like, I want the same heat you're throwing down on Twitter. They never show up with the same heat. <laughs> but you don't, but you don't actually want that. You no, want the conversation. I kind of do. <laughs> yeah, I've learned next to nothing in my life from Matt Welch, who's, uh, you might n- see him in a little square here in the Hollywood Square. That's Matt Welch. And I've learned next to nothing from him. One time he did teach me something, though. And to that point, Jen, I, there was someone who wrote me an email. This was like around the time I did that Jonah Lehrer story. And it was like, you, are a fascist you're a communist you're a nazi i hate you and if you have a family i hope they all get some horrible disease and i was like oh wow that was pretty aggressive and matt said to me respond to them and i was like i don't he said you if you respond to them they're gonna be like hey i'm really sorry about that you know because you're so happy and flattered that you responded and like in real life it's a totally different thing and i did that and he was right matt yeah no it becomes first i mean this goes to (laughs) Something I really want to get past in the show is that so much of the purported arguments, I'm using air quotes because it's very visual media, but a lot of the people who are having quote unquote arguments are actually having kind of positioning fights of being like, Mm -hmm. I want to be seen having the correct opinion. And then there are a lot of issues we get into where I'm like, actually, I don't know enough about this thing to have an opinion on it yet. And I don't want to just have the opinion that I think other people wish me to have. So I want to learn more about it and see what we talk about. Like, when we're talking about 
we did the episode um, with uh, John McWhorter um, mm -hmm. and my colleague Michelle Goldberg talking about critical race theory, which I thought was really interesting. And a lot of these issues were so much of what people are saying. I was like, well, this person likes it, so I hate it. Or this person I like likes it, so I also like it, even though I kind of don't really know what's going on here. And that was something I really wanted to get past. But yeah, like the the number of times um, this happened a lot at Vox where people get so infuriated at me in an email and then I would respond and they would be like, oh, we didn't I didn't think you would actually ever see this. And I was like, did you just <laughs> did you just think like, I mean, I know like many people don't respond to all their emails, but I always respond <laughs> I even to don't. like the weird hate ones with like, thanks for reading because they <laughs> find that to be. <laughs> uh, that makes them irate and that makes me happy but um yeah i really this has been the show i've always wanted to do of asking a lot of big questions of people and having them especially asking questions of people who disagree with them on certain issues and disagree with them on the actual points of the issue not just on like a weird positioning fight in which they are trying to peer to something else that is beyond us yeah jane i mean there is this this glowing profile of you in the washington post what and let me i gotta google this keep talking have, have, you, have you not seen have you not seen this thing you have seen no this. no no i, I the, don't read the, the washington post the title the, the title of yeah. the profile because <laughs> they're the title of the profile though is very telling because it's it's like a coming out in a way at least it felt oh. that way when i was re, 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 reading yeah it. yeah yeah dc's rising libertarian star yeah, with okay. her Which healthy skepticism way. of state power secures yes. an influential podcast. Yes, I. Well, it's interesting how that got positioned because uh, I yeah. really think that they were like, oh, this is something different. Because we had this long, uh, myself and the author of that piece, um, mm -hmm. very nice reporter, we had this long back and forth. I think we talked for like 90 minutes. And most of what I remember is just talking about how I was interested in asking a lot of questions. But yes, I am a registered libertarian. And I think that that became the focal point in a way that I was kind of like, it's interesting that that became the thing mm -hmm. that like, there are a lot of different ways you could position me. And I know mm. that, like, I know that like you could, I'm like, there's something for every kind of audience or no audience at all. Um, but like, there's something for everyone. There's a point like, at which it's no audience. Yeah. But like, there's definitely people who are like, oh, she's a Christian. Oh, she's not heterosexual. Oh, she's black. Like, there's something out there for everybody. Um, yeah. Or again, no one. Yeah. College football. There are a lot of people who follow, started following me and my work like, 10 years ago because of my writing on college football and essentially have they were like i have no interest in literally anything else you say <laughs> except talking about college football and i was like you're a real one yeah i respect that is. for just there being like, i don't want to hear anything about politics i just want to hear you talk about past interference and i'm like you know i also <laughs> like talking about past interference but um <laughs> That was, I, I it, thought, by the way, in that piece, because I, because Camille's right, I actually did see that, and it's because of the headline. And I was when I saw it, I was like, well, I don't know if that's true, but it's certainly going to make Jane's life difficult at the New York Times. Um, people are like, oh god, another one. We've, we're getting rid of most of them, and here comes another one. Um, but there was something I saw, and I thought I was like, oh my god, your dad is a libertarian. And then I looked down, and I was like, oh, it says the, the line librarian. Is, Her father's a black librarian, and it's <laughs> he's, a black, he's a black librarian. 
And I'm like, wow, at which am I supposed to be surprised by the black part? I mean, what is his father? A black librarian. Yeah. So does it say that on his the, business card? Black librarian. Yes. I just figured Camille would like that. I, I actually it's interesting because he it. had a it, it was fascinating because my dad was a research librarian and a film librarian, mm-hmm. which is also why every it took me a lot of times I've always been extra interested in pop culture. And by that I mean like actual popular culture. Because my dad would bring home like French art films and like we'd watch them as a family and then I'd try to go to school and talk about them and <laughs> it didn't go well. Didn't because <laughs> but then like you go to college and suddenly people are like, Oh, I also have seen this. Like I, I was like I was made to be an early two thousands hipster and mm. I it was just like the right time for that. And my my upbringing did not was not great for like hanging around other kids my own age but yeah like my dad was librarian um and my mom works uh she was a court-appointed special advocate for neglected and abused children Hmm. in the juvenile justice and foster care system and now she works at lighthouse um in cincinnati which is an organization and a shelter for runaway youth um which was an interesting thing also to grow up with because whatever my sister and i had done she was dealing with kids who were like yay like you are you you're you're working with a magistrate and you're doing all of these things so i would just be like i got an a in my homework and my mom would be like that's great but like <laughs> these kids really have like a lot of needs and a lot of problems so like you handle yourself yeah. <laughs> and your dad's like i'm trying to watch truffaut could you guys <laughs> keep it down please know, like we're watching diva come on um my dad also is like super into like the tour de france and formula one and stuff like that so again like all of my cultural references as a child, I had to learn what kids were into. Mm. Like we got, um, we got cable television. And I remember as a kid that this somehow, you know, how there's like a thing that happens and then another thing that happens. And then when you're a kid, you put them together, even though Mm. that's not how it works. I remember we had a giant lightning storm and then we had cable and my brain was like, the lightning gave us cable. And then I was like, now thinking back, I'm like, I think my dad got us cable. Yeah. But I remember literally my parent. I was not supposed to watch any commercial television. So my mom would go. I mean, the thing is, I've always said, and I think that it ties into basically my views on like teaching children anything, is that if you attempt to restrict a child from something, that's what they become absolutely obsessed hmm. with. So my mom would go to the store and I'd be like, okay. You're going to try and watch three episodes of Saved by the Bell in 22 minutes. (laughs) Because I was like, I need to know what, or like Boy Meets World or Blossom, who I thought was like the coolest person who had ever lived. that's not true. No, I... Okay. You just do a Joey Lawrence impression coming out? (laughs) Wow. That's really throwing it back there, isn't it? Sorry. You know what? That show, there's also her her older brother in that show is a recovering alcoholic. So there's always like a very a random very special episode which we don't do anymore. Oh, very yeah. special episodes. We That's don't true. do very special yeah. episodes. Like Boy Meets World, oh. there was like the like someone uh, tr- someone tried to get Sean into a cult. Like there are lots of very special <laughs> do you remember episodes. Remember when Dudley was molested? <laughs> du- this is a little before your time, baby. I know, Dudley, by the bicycle shop owner. Yes, yeah. played by Gordon Jump. 
from yeah. WKRP. <laughs> <laughs> and he like he's like, come back to my and, yeah. and Dudley's like, obviously I'm gonna come yeah. back. And right. everybody and then, else is like, dude, fact- what are you doing? He's gonna molest yes. you. Episodes <laughs> always end with the black screen with the phone number <laughs> yes. that you need to call. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're, you're suffering like through exactly the same thing. It's captured it by Gordon Jones. It also Jump. is now. There's the episode. Is it? Uh, is it different strokes uh, that had Nancy Reagan on it? Yes, I and think it's an episode right. and Mr. T. of different. Yeah, and it's an episode same of different episode, strokes yeah. in which I believe that the kid is supposed to be like eight years old, and Nancy mm. Reagan comes to his class and is like, "Has anyone here done drugs?" And like some kid <laughs> raises his hand, and I'm like, we, "I have additional questions yeah. about why eight-year-olds are apparently using marijuana." And then it comes to like the very end. Um, same thing with an episode on Saved by the Bell of like there's like one person who smokes a joint in life and then they do like a whole like facing the audience moment of like this has been a very serious episode and now looking back (laughs) we are just like everyone involved with this show is doing so much coke like elizabeth berkeley had the saved by the bell episode with i'm so excited because she's taking all those pills to stay awake yeah yeah Yeah. to work on a project and adderall never has that effect on me no no amazing and obviously uh she went on to be uh it being the greatest stripper movie of all time so i mean i don't know it's actually just an excellent classic film and we've come to appreciate that later on i watched it recently celebrated for her work in showgirls well jane will you do the uh uh, with a commentary track on uh, on Showgirls. Well, I actually find there are many moments of that movie where I spent. I'm just like, please not in the fountain, please not in the fountain. Yeah. And then, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, make the T-shirt for Jane. Please not in the fountain. Just in the front. Please. please not in the fountain. And really, like that is like it's that is a movie where you're just like this is like it's a it's aggressively sexual, but mm-hmm. also not. In yes. a way, I'm just like it's just very, like a strip club. <laughs> it's true. It's like um, I'm just like, true. what am I doing here? It's <laughs> true. Ben, like how it are here. you doing? Great. <laughs> <laughs> it's too early for Yeah. yeah that, that's that's why we're going to Miami. You know, um, I want to bring Matt into this for one for one second because I, Jane, yeah, you please. said something that's interesting. Is that you know you the teachers they do these things and you the, you know you're on the other side of them. It's not cool. Now here's the difference: is like Matt's daughter. Is a good example. We talk about her a lot, so I don't feel bad saying this. And I will see her tomorrow, too, by the way. And so I'll make fun of her in person. And she's 12, right, Matt? 12? Yeah. A lot of kids her age, they go through the New York City school system, and they come out these, like, Maoist scolds, like, reporting their parents. (laughs) And, like, every time Matt says something, she's like, you know what? You are a white supremacist. And I'm like, man, in the past, when (laughs) teachers told me something, I was like, fuck that. I'm going to be the opposite of that. But it seems like in the New York City school system, all of these kids are actually listening to their teachers. Is this – am I wrong about this, Matt? I'm not. I'm not sure. I I, I look at her homework on occasion, uh, right? Uh, when what a she great parent you are. Things. And she uh, <laughs> no. I mean, when she asked me to, um, and my, she my actually did, so. is is way more uh, Camille esque in her because every every oh. class, whether it's math, whether it's history. Um, it's usually something about like you know genocide against Native Americans, or <laughs> uh, she just did a. No, I'm I'm I'm, I'm actually just you. Re- you can do a math the problem, facts man. here. Um, uh, uh, and recently she did, for example, uh, uh, an essay comparing and contrasting Frederick Douglass with John Brown. Right? That's uh-huh. interesting. Oh! Hello. Well, yeah. I'm um, not. Ooh. I'm not. Easy is listening to the podcast? Yeah. Uh, 
She uh, will sometimes hear it ambiently because her mother listens to it upstairs. Um, But she so um, to to quicken the answer, Moynihan, she uses that stuff as a club to beat her mother. Oh, I see. Got it. When when the mother's French and therefore her mother's French. uh, And uh, and so like uh, Emmanuel will be like singing the Numa Numa Ye song. Like na 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 numa numa ye numa 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 ye because you, know, you know that's what you do and mm-hmm. uh, and easy will say mom don't do that that's racist wow. <laughs> and then and then oh, our wow. six year old will say you know either that's racist or no mama that's not racist it's okay and so this no your six year old in the proud girls she's a different a different child no she's she's trying to abs- mostly trying to like uh, split the difference and uh, absolve her mother of crimes against uh, humanity by singing you know Moldova songs but uh <laughs> but in the actual work that easy does at school she's objectively pro frederick Douglass. she's objectively yeah. uh uh anti-john brown uh she's uh for kind of individualism um and in many ways john brown john brown's um, great he's just had a mental illness uh, i don't even know about little, that little, little, i mean like, it's crazy it, come on i don't know if you i don't know about that i i just i it's interesting though because if you like one thing that I really like, I think the most beautiful speech ever written is written um, mm. by Frederick Douglass about John Brown. Mm-hmm. And he gets into like when we met and discussed his plan to attempt to take <laughs> Harper's, Fal- uh, Harper's Ferry. Yes. I told him this is a bad plan because it was a bad plan. But I now thinking back, I appreciate the fact that this was a man who was like, uh, you know, I was willing to live for freedom. and He was willing to die for mine. Damn right. Like. He basically, like, he showed up. Like, he showed up. Mm. He put, you know, he put his ass on the line. He, mm-hmm. His mouth wrote a check that his ash, ass was willing to cash. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something, like, it's interesting also because his entire, he, this was the thing that he was focused on. Like, he was mm-hmm. very bad. He was supposed to be selling, like, he was supposed to be a tradesman. He was very bad at it. He spent a lot of time running low on money and having to ask various children for help. But mm-hmm. all of his kids were like, we'll help. Like, we're here for you. He had numerous sons who died at Harper's Ferry or in Kansas before. And I think it was one of those moments at which he and the moment were both so severe and extreme that it mm-hmm. worked. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's something like I've always been a great admirer of John Brown. And it's funny because occasionally, like, I read, oh God, I read some, like, Manhattan, it wasn't Manhattan Institute, it was um something like a conservative think tank, I think, out of North Carolina. And they essentially, they were criticizing a professor for being part of an open carry leftist organization that's like a John Brown <laughs> John gun Brown group, mm-hmm. yeah. which I was like, so open carry is bad now because it's this person open carry. Oh, well, that's fun. <laughs> fun and exciting. But I, they made yeah. this random side point of like, well, you know, if John Brown wouldn't have done that, maybe the South could have come to, we could have come to a peaceable solution. And I was like, what? <laughs> In 1859? What no, we couldn't. Uh, yeah. No, no. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. We're no, negotiating. I, I, will, I will say, like, John Brown, and, we, and we've talked about him in the past, and I've, I've mm. formally held the this perspective that he must have been a little crazy. And there is no doubt. I mean, he he pulled people out of their homes and murdered them. And they hadn't done anything. And that is bad. That's objectionable. We object to that. That said, Ralph Waldo Emerson, for whom my daughter has that additional middle name because mm-hmm. my, my wife already had the whole name. And I was just like, can I just get one? So she's Leah Lynette Emerson Foster. 
Um, I thought you were going to say describe John Brown saying that he made the gallows glorious, like the cross. Yeah, like the there's something about what he committed himself to that is pretty remarkable and inspiring, and it's it's hard for me not to not to acknowledge that. Um, but but I want to turn this a little bit because we've we've made this wonderful transition. Thank you, Moynihan, to the education space, and Jane. I think that actually dovetails quite nicely with the the message I sent you that brought us to this point again, mm-hmm. uh, which at the time, I believe you were commenting on uh, a release from FAIR, some sort of mm-hmm. document about mm-hmm. like critical race theory in classrooms, which has become an, an incredibly important cultural flashpoint. Um, and the, the particular sort of vantage points that people are approaching this from on the left and the right are are different and distinct, like any culture mm-hmm. war, like it's just kind of blinding, blindingly insane in the sense that they, people don't even agree on what critical race theory is. Right. Um, people have, and I would also <laughs> even argue yeah. that I think that it's, it's fascinating to me that this has become a flashpoint, but I'm like, uh-huh. for whom is it a flashpoint? Why is it a flashpoint? And, yeah. like, at a certain point, is this one of those things, like, is this becoming, like, the Ebonics in schools argument where we could have been having this other conversation, but people uh-huh. were like, this is way more financially advantageous for me if we have this particular argument that isn't even really about the argument we're having, like, we're really having. It, it's, it's, but, it's hard to disentangle it. And, and this is the thing. We've, we've actually spent a fair amount of time talking about these issues. FAIR, the organization that published the thing that you were commenting on, is an organization that I'm on the advisory board of. Um, but also the advisory board was constituted before FAIR was really constituted. And as a new organization, FAIR is kind of deciding what it wants to be in important respects. And I don't think I'm, that's not you know, a criticism. It's just the truth. Um, I think there's a lot of optionality there. Like you could be more like what the ACLU used to be or what an organization like FIRE is, or you could do explicit like political organizing or issue-oriented advocacy and organizing to try to help teachers and students or whatever navigate these issues and even choosing the language. And it's just an odd circumstance where you have people like Chris Rufo and myself on the same advisory board and we have different public projects. So it creates a lot of weird circumstances and you Jane are someone I think who has a lot of thoughtful nuanced takes on important stuff uh, often related to race stuff which we've just we've had you on the podcast multiple times and we've Mm -hmm. never been able to mine any of this stuff with you and now that we are in the moment of what is what has been described as the the racial reckoning and I actually had to stop myself from saying racial retrogression which is how I've been describing it I don't actually know that I know what your vantage point is on a lot of this stuff. And when I read the um, the Washington Post thing and I saw, you know, it opens with Jane Coaston hates the phrase black community. I <laughs> and the specific quote that was attributed to you related to this was we expect a level of heterogeneity among white people that communities of colors are not granted. And mm-hmm. Even reading that in print just like resonated with me in this way that like most stuff I read about this topic never does. So I'm eager to hear your perspective on kind of what you what you make of the racial reckoning and what it what it's kind of delivered to America, both good and ill. Um, That's a small question. Like what and, and in the context of journalism, where we yeah. both and all do some things, uh, me to the to the least profound degree. But yeah, 
is there is there even a question in there? Do I need to narrow this no, to no, like how do you self identify? What's up with this um, racial reckoning? There are a couple thing? things in there. Um, first, I would say that I think that that the gift of heterogeneity is something that I think a lot of people take for granted that many people do not get to have. Um, and I, you know, there are tons of examples. I've been thinking a lot about. Um, I'm going to say this term despite the fact that I absolutely hate it. Um, because I don't think like the idea of ethnic or racial communities is a really hard term. And I think it's mostly because it's easy to write down and easy to contemplate. But like when people are talking about like Asian Americans, I was like, are you're literally conflating <laughs> billions of people, like not like millions, like billions. And uh-huh. it's just like, if you're Chinese and you're Hmong, you're the same. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, like what? No, no. Like we are talking like vast differences in economic attainment and mm-hmm. his, like and history and groups of people who've been like for one thing i mean countries. it's the same thing with yeah. like yeah and for one thing it's kind of like how um and i'll, I'll get to thinking about mm-hmm. whiteness mm-hmm. in the white community such as it doesn't exist but like the thing that creates in my view and for african americans that has created the conceit of a community has not been a unified sense of like well we all think blah 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 blah. it has been the vice of oppression Mm. and i think about this a lot of times um we're doing an episode in a week uh on cops at pride and i think it's a fascinating way into that particular issue where you're like for lesbians gays and bisexuals what has brought people together has not been like, well, we're all very similar. I'm like, because we're not. Like, there are lots of like conservative gays and liberal gays and communist lesbians and extremely conservative lesbians. Like, there are lots of different kinds of people, but all of this community, such as it did exist, were pushed out of federal employment, chased by the federal government, um, urged into treatments or reparative therapy by family and state alike and so it's that vice of oppression Mm. that has brought these communities such as they exist together like the thing that i have in common with other african americans who are the sense of descendants of slaves is not like it's not like me and lebron are like we have nothing in common and me and alan keys have nothing in common now, me and LeBron and Alan Keyes and, like, Maxine Waters have nothing in common except for the historical experience of this thing that happened on the black side of my family, which is that we were apparently brought to Louisiana and then Georgia to work for people as slaves. And so I think that that is something that that conceit of the... The idea of a com- the black community has that ha- was forced upon us, and that community aspect was forced upon a lot of different groups of people. And then people are kind of expected to just continue it. And so we have this idea of black community leaders, and it drives me nuts. Um, because you see, like, in conservative publications... They'll talk out of, in my view, both sides of their mouth of being like, African-Americans, you know, our individuals, like, get, you know, 
But at the same time, they're like, look, these black community leaders all oppose this thing that we also oppose. And I'm like, what leaders? Did we vote? I don't remember a vote. Was there a call? Did I miss a call? Like this idea of we would never think. And what they mean is these black people that we have identified as being leaders within these particular groups. Now, perhaps they are leaders of a particular religious community or a political community, but they, they have not led me. I don't know. And I think that that's something that's always really bothered me is this conceit that we are to be united in a way that doesn't even quite, like, it doesn't make sense. And we are not given the gift of heterogeneity. And even when you see conversations, I think that this gets to the thinking over what's been happening over the last year, even when you see people talking about Black Lives Matter, particularly when you see non-black people talking about Black Lives Matter to each other, Mm -hmm. there's an idea of like, I saw a back and forth between some people on Twitter where they're like, you know, I don't get why blacks are so easily fooled by these groups. And I'm like, see, this is why this is is happening. Because we give the conceit, and it's interesting to me that when you have, when you think about and you see, you know, the conversations, um, I don't know if you saw, there was a, a back and forth, an exchange between uh, Mark Lamont Hill and Christopher Rufo talking about this. I, it's I about 27 minutes I certainly long. certainly did. You can't miss it. Um, and this like, conceit of whiteness, which mm-hmm. is something that I, um, in my other work that I've done, I've written a lot on white nationalism, the existence of the actual thing of white nationalism and white nationalist organizations and terror groups. Like, the actual thing, like, I think we bandy around terms like white nationalists and Nazi and stuff like that, but these are specific Mm -hmm. things with a specific tether to these ideas. And the thing that bonds white nationalism together is this idea of a cohesive white state, a white Mm ethno-nationalism. And you saw that in um, the man who committed the uh, atrocity that was the Christchurch shooting. He put out a manifesto, Mm -hmm. and part of it was saying that, like, us, he's... Australian, he was like, Australia is part of this like white nation, this conceit mm-hmm. of the Aryan nation. Mm-hmm. But the thing that the, united, the white diaspora to, yeah, to, to yeah, change exactly. a phrase but the that thing Mark that Lamont bonds, Hill used in a different context. Of right. Black, the thing the that African bonds diaspora. that together <laughs> is not oppression. It is not a sense of uh, similarity. It's not that like, ah, yes, Germany and France, they've always gotten together. It's always mm-hmm. been fun. Like, you know, I was just thinking about like the War on the Roses where English people and other English people fought each other for a long time. Like, it is the idea of not being not white. Yeah. That can, can is stop, what this conceit has been. Yes. Can I stop you here before we get to the to the American context of the racial reckoning? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm very intrigued by this, but I also find that you've pretty well encapsulated like two concepts that are the places where I probably have some like pretty sharp disagreements with you, but I don't know how mm-hmm. sharp mm-hmm. when you talk about this conceit of community and it being imposed via this vice grip of oppression, mm-hmm. like the, there's a couple of different things that come to mind. I mean, one of which is this Baldwin uh, quote that I have frequently invoked, but it's been a little while. So I feel okay. Invoking again here now, someone hasn't heard it before, but it's uh, that centers for American Negroes, 
have been white is a truth we need in labor and every American Negro knows, therefore, um, risks having the gates of paranoia close on him in a society that is entirely hostile and by its own nature seems determined to cut you down, that has cut down so many in the past, um, it begins to be almost impossible to distinguish a real from a fancied injury. And I mean, the vice grip of oppression, there's a sense in which, you know, African people who come here as immigrants, Jamaican people who come here as immigrants are all viewed as, as black or African-American. We talk about that, them in this kind of very, I think, sloppy, generic way. And it, it seems to me that, you know, your impulses about individuality, the individuality of everyone who is black, because you must be an individual in order to be a part of one of these communities. Like the, the thing that we grant to people who are deemed white is respect for the abstraction. Mm-hmm. And we deny that respect for the abstraction to black people. But the fact that we're denying it to them, and in many instances, people deny it to themselves, isn't it feels like it isn't a function of necessarily direct oppression that is like being meted out to you personally in many instances, certainly not now. It is a function of this like alchemy by which people imagine that they themselves, as James Baldwin said as well, I picked the cotton and I built the, the, I don't remember the rest of it, but this is in Mm -hmm. that debate with, um, gosh, who was it? Who was at Oxford? I forget. Yeah. Um, Buckley uh, actually it was the Buckley yes, Baldwin debate, yes. which is and worth, that was worth one, watching in its entirety. It is. But I, I've always also like Baldwin because, gives me uh, both of those things, and Baldwin one of them makes I agree with a lot of facial expressions that I would really like <laughs> gifts of during that. Yeah, like they're just he yeah. he, he he had time that day. So um, I, I don't I don't know if there's a a very sharp sort of distinction in question in there, but it it does feel to me that there's something in that that like I tug on, and maybe I'll I'll make the transition in this way and then hand the ball off to you because you like college football. Um, I do. In Marin County, where I currently reside, mm-hmm. I have actually developed this habit of confronting people now, like on the street. I'm a lunatic. It pissed my wife off this past Saturday. There's a guy in a Black Lives Matter t-shirt at this restaurant. Wait, you did this on Saturday? I did this on Saturday. And I said to, and I, and I said to Tracy, I'm going to go talk to him. She said, please don't. Please, God, don't. And I did. Mm-hmm. And it was it was actually kind of wonderful, <laughs> well, and it was a great relief for me. Um, <laughs> and and I'll I'll encapsulate our interaction this way. Like I said to him that I see these T-shirts all the time, and they're worn by people who I know are like good, earnest people mm-hmm. who care a great deal about mm-hmm. their fellow man. But I resent the sentiment deeply, and I think it's important that you know that. Not everyone who looks a particular way imagines themselves to be downtrodden in need of rescue. And most black people aren't victimized. Most black people aren't aren't disadvantaged. They're not broken. They're they're not in need of you to remind them or anyone else that their lives matter. Um, And I think in a place like San Francisco, and I talked about this the other day as well, where we are surrounded by like genuine need, deep systemic fucking need like homeless people who are dying from overdoses um more overdose death than covid deaths in san francisco like what are we fucking doing why are you essentializing race in this way generalize creating this sort of generalized concern about people who happen to look like me and not addressing ourselves to meaningful concern like there's something wrong with that 
Um, we actually had an interesting conversation, and it it felt good, and it felt good. decidedly different. I feel like that could have gone in like eighty seconds <laughs> different directions. Nah, and I was like, <laughs> they, they they won't the do it, Jane. You know. Of- this is the ironic no, story won't. of how Kamel got arrested for <laughs> no, confronting what? a white person wearing the, a BLM shirt. I, I I did it in the same tone, and it it won't it won't go badly because honestly, like, what are they going to say? No, 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 you need my help. <laughs> you need. But my, I think in fact, that that kind of tried in to. Itself, I mean, that's something that gets to me. Because I think that that, that is, me, I mean, man. this is one of those moments in which I'm <laughs> Fucking going pepper to pepper spray you. This is one of those moments in which I think I come out sounding like, no, like I'm an actual critical race theory Marxist. Um, because there's a theory in, um, in critical race theory and introduction, the book, uh, Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk make this point, which I, I think about all the time, which is if you have two people mm-hmm. and they are saying derogatory things about homeless people and a third person is like, hey, Stop saying derogatory things about homeless people. And they stop. What has that done for the homeless person? They're still homeless, but people aren't saying mean things about them. And I think about, in some ways, that shirt in the same way. As when the idea of Black Lives Matter was supposed to be, in my view, a conversation about police brutality, about over-policing and under-policing, about what police do in some communities and don't do in other communities like i've been recently obsessed with um this is a weird thing to be obsessed with but like if you look at homicide clearance rates in a lot of major cities for instance in honolulu hawaii in 2019 they had a homicide clearance rate of 25 percent which means and clearance doesn't mean like solved it means Mm -hmm. someone got arrested Mm -hmm. or it was closed for some other reason it's or maybe it was solved but I, you know, this is a conversation about like, what are police supposed to be doing? Because the when people, when you talk to folks in, you know, where I grew up in Cincinnati or in any other community, it's not like we don't want, you know, we don't want any police. It is like, we want the police to come when we call them because somebody's breaking into our house. We don't want the police to sit outside our house and wait for someone to jaywalk. And I think that that is something where the term Black Lives Matter became a signaling device and stopped being, for many people, an effort. And I think that there was a very um, concise plan to do that, because I think that, like, obviously, if you're a corporation, if you're like, well, I could think about the material conditions of some of America's poorest people, um, white, black, Latino, Native American, because police brutality, um, you know, one of the areas with the most uh, police-related deaths is Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And it happens to indigenous folks. I mean, n- the police brutality rate against in- uh, Native Americans is like, s- stupid high. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's all stupid, but it's very high. And rates happening to Latino Americans is also quite high. But, you know, it's way easier to make a shirt than it is to think about, like, what are the material conditions facing the poorest communities in America? Mm-hmm. What are the things that we could actually be doing? Or we could put up a box on Instagram. And I think that that's what people, in some ways, were responding to, is just that, like, this signaling doesn't seem to be doing anything. And it's a useful signal, and people have made a shit ton of money out of signaling, mm. but it isn't really answering any questions or doing anything and then you see people who even found that signaling to be offensive in some way 
And we got into this weird thing-adjacent battle about, like, no, all lives matter. What about this? What about my favorite? And by favorite, I mean least favorite. The people being like, well, what about this white guy who got murdered by the cops? As if, like, oh, that's fine. Oh, it's totally fine that Daniel Shaver was murdered in a hotel hallway while sobbing and crying on his knees. Oh, it's totally fine that Tony Timpa was held down on the ground while cops laughed at him on video, and then those cops received qualified immunity because there was no way that they could have possibly known that they were violating his constitutional rights. Timpa had, in fact, called the police because he was having a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. And so I think my issue there is that, like, I think that the signal, I mean, and we signal all the time. So much of what we do in public is in some ways a signal about what we care about and what we want other people to know that we care about or like. Even like if you're on Instagram and you take a picture of what you eat and you're at a restaurant, why do you choose to take a picture of this food at this restaurant and not this other one? It's like you're signaling like, I go to nice places or I go to a place that you've heard of or I go to mm-hmm. places that like people are talking about. It's not like you're not taking a picture of like, I had some toast. Like, I think that that's what gets me is that a lot of people have got very wrapped up in the signaling aspect because that's way easier. It's way easier. I mean, it's the same way that you see a host of Republicans who there's no way they're going to raise taxes on Amazon, but they're going to write a letter. <laughs> about how very sad Amazon's quote-unquote woke policies, and I hate that term so much because it just seems to be like a thing I find offensive. I'm the same person who I was calling people snowflakes like three years ago, but now I'm offended. Um, you know, they're, they're just going to write a letter or they're going to tweet something or they're going to tweet a video of themselves writing a letter. Like, it's <laughs> this ba- this constant signaling fight that I think just kind of, renders us nowhere with nothing i think the only uh yeah go ahead matt sorry i'm just gonna make the important point that the only tweet of someone writing a letter that's good is that dude who used to make the videos on youtube of uh doing x on salvia and he was like writing a letter (laughs) to your congressman on salvia oh god first you get the paper and the pen and then you take your hit of salvia which he does and then he tries to write a letter and it's it is so fucking hilarious go on no, oh. I think one of the the issues yeah. uh, for me on, I mean, let's just take BLM because that's it seems to be a catch-all for people these days. Not necessarily as an organization, but as a movement, as the type of person that's going to walk down the street with that shirt on. You know, one of the issues that I have is is you know I would love it if BLM was narrowly focused on policing. Like your point, you know, if somebody's waiting outside. Uh, proactive policing, you know, waiting outside, waiting for somebody to jaywalk so they can pat them down and see if they have drugs on them or if they have a gun on them or something. Um, you know, that, I don't like stuff like that. I don't like the fact that, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of in the middle on this new Chicago policy of like when you should give chase, but I think that's the right idea. And we had like a debate on, on this podcast about this. Should they even have been giving chase to this 13-year-old kid at uh, three in the morning. I mean, I think the answer is yes, because there was just, you know, a lot of gunfire and uh, he was involved in it. But, you know, the thing that, that, that bothers me about it is that it's about so much more. It's about so much more than policing. And the presumption is that somebody is there waiting to pat somebody down because of co- some sort of racist superstructure, some sort of white supremacist superstructure. And mm-hmm. it, it doesn't acknowledge 
the background that comes from so many communities themselves. And we've talked about uh, the book, uh, The Black Silent Majority, that Harvard University, Pre- Harvard Pre- uh, University Press published, I think maybe five or six years ago, about the actual conservatism in New York City that created some of the policing policies of over-policing in a lot of these neighborhoods. And, you know, we've talked, obviously, a lot about the Congressional Black Caucus and the and the um, the sentencing disparities between uh, crack and powder cocaine. And when you look at this stuff with, like, you know, an honest, open, how did this stuff happen? That is where they lose me, uh, you know, in almost every single way. Because it's an idea of America that has a greater, you know, it, I mean, the people who blubber about, oh, she said she's a trained Marxist, whatever, Patricia, what's her name, Coolers or something? The one who just yeah, resigned Patrice from... Yeah, Patrice Coolers, yeah. Yeah, Patrice Coolers. Oh, wait, you know, did, did she resign? She resigned yesterday from, yeah. you know, because she needs, because there was more money to be made elsewhere. Um, she's now a real estate mogul. She can't be, <laughs> oh, she can't be doing this Black Lives Matter stuff. Um, and our diabetic listeners will know like, oh, Moynihan's alarm's going off his uh, blood sugar's low. So if I don't make any points that make any sense, it's because <laughs> I have a medical condition. You just went into shock. An idiot. It's fine. Yeah. But no, that is. Is there anyone kind of, there who can shove gummy bears in your mouth? Uh, no, no, there's, there's Jeez. two HVAC workers and they'll probably just laugh at me and take more of my money. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but you know, that's the thing for me is that when you say I'm a trained Marxist, I don't really care about that so much as, you know, when she says that and the other person is, uh, you know, uh, with her hands, you know, held aloft next to Maduro, is that there is a bigger kind of political program here that I think is is wrong, stupid, poisonous. If it were just about policing and about how that policing specifically affected black communities, I think there'd be an easier conversation to be had rather than the kind of let's blow everything up, everybody, there's this sort of massive <clears throat> conspiracy going on. And, you know, every thing that happens is about, you know, why people mention Tony Timpa. I mean, you had John McWhorter on your show, uh, and John is the one that, you know, talks about that case. And I think that, you know, I'll let him speak to his own point. But I think the point that obviously is is being made is that this is oftentimes a power issue more than a race issue. I mean, of course, there's times when it's a race issue, too. But we flatten everything mm-hmm. when it comes to these conversations to say, well, it must be about race because, you know, for instance, Derek Chauvin was a white police officer and George Floyd was the black victim. And is is it exclusively, is it 10%? Is it 100% about race? Because you watch the trial and there was zero mention of race, none, mm-hmm. which is amazing considering it was the big racial trial, you know, the biggest one probably since the O.J. Simpson trial, right? Or the or the trial of uh, Stacey Coons and the cops that uh, beat Rodney King is that it seems to be the biggest one since then, and yet in the trial, um, it's not mentioned. So I think the complexity of it is lost, and that's what annoys me about it. But I think that it's it's very challenging, even Jane, you're, here... You're slightly off mic. Um, oh, just sorry. You're, sorry, I started you, wandering. Um, no, this okay. is the thing. My, it drives my producer nuts, because I'm just like, sorry. I'm over here. I'm over there. I'm it's over here. Wonder- I hate um, to interrupt you, because I, I, I want, I, but I just want to get it. Um, I think that these issues, because I think that there is no... I mean, I think that that's something I disagree with on the kind of like the super left of like, this is all a distraction. So we don't have to talk about class. And like, mm-hmm. if we just, um, and generally a lot of these people are edge lords on the internet who, and then if you meet them in real life, they're like, I'm less edge lordy, which I'm like, just be an edge lord all the time. Like, I want you to be a ledge lord at whole foods. Like, <laughs> oh, they exist. but this idea that, <laughs> yes. And I, I need more of them, but this idea that you could have, cause I think that, 
a lot of these issues, like the intersection of Ooh. intersectionality, which is actually a, a legal concept more so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it gets at, I mean, the original conceit of Kimberly Crenshaw's work was that you had two cases in which African-American women were doubly discriminated by a system in one of, in a company that didn't hire black people before a certain time and then made all, all women quit at a certain time with the assumption that they're going to go get married and have kids. And so you had black women who, were, who faced the intersection of those two identities. And I think that in some ways, the idea that we could de-racialize a lot of these power conversations, because, and I totally get it, because you have issues like with um, George Floyd's murder, you, you have issue, you know, you have non-white cops who are there watching this man die. Even while people are watch are also take watching this, saying like this, please stop. This man needs help. Mm-hmm. And I think that, but I think that it's important to note that like all of these things are all happening at once. All of and the idea I think that we see so many times is like, well, we need more black cops or more black people on the board of this corporation. No, like that's not that's not really getting at it. But I do think that that seems to be like the easiest possible option. So obviously that'll be what we get at, but. I always think about the fact that, like, at the time, you know, if you talk to, like, super lefty people where they think this is this could be purely a class issue, I think about the time that the, the, mo- the time of the least income inequality in America, or probably an easier way to say that the most economically equal time in America is probably between 1948 and 1953, which, for most black people... Not a terrific time. <laughs> and we think about like the right, like union towns, like, like my, um, on, on the white side of my family, uh, my mom grew up in St. Mary's, West Virginia, um, in coal country. And you had these union towns that were essentially owned by the coal company, but where these unions had been given the power to ensure that everyone had access to schools. And while the company owned the company store, hence the term, um, you know, you had access to materials and you, you could make sure that your kids were going to a good school and if, you know, and you could have access to a good home and a good job if you were white. And the, the access to the union itself was segregated because even at a time where you had people thinking about class organization and the rise of unions in the 1910s, 1920s, the idea was like, well, we couldn't do it with black people, even if we wanted to, because other people would be deeply offended by it. So I think that one of the challenges here is that you can't deracinate our conversations about power and class and the economy. And I think that in many ways, there's like this, the easy button of like, well, we'll just throw more non-white people in there. But that's not it either. Because when we're having conversations about policing in general, it's not just about an individual non-white person or black person. It's about like communities writ large. And it's about what crime means and what crime does and about who gets away with crimes and who doesn't. I, I um, this is a segue, but I, I love true crime podcasts and stuff like that. It is an aspect of my personality that's probably again like, eh, raises some questions, but I'm sure I'll I'll deal with that later as a moral <laughs> entity. But 
So they make um they made a podcast version of Dateline with Keith Morrison. <laughs> the greatest. Um which is Keith Morrison. <laughs> fantastic. But it's but it's fa- it's there's always an episode that's like there's this horrifying murder, but it's always in a town like well, this sort of thing doesn't happen here. And it's always like, she was an all-American girl until she murdered six people or something like that. And the conceit that we have is that, well, there are towns where there's crime and there are towns where there's no crime. But look, we all know that that's not exactly true because there are places where people get arrested for things and places where people don't get arrested for things. And a lot of times that has more to do with poverty than race but sometimes that interweaves where we think that a poor area that's majority white is safer than a poor area that's majority black and i i think that these intersections and it's even hard to like mm-hmm. encapsulate all of this in a way that makes sense in a podcast it's the kind of thing where it's like first i'm going to write six books then i'm going to talk about it for 10 years but i think that that's <laughs> All of this is all interwoven in a way that was never going to be able to get across in a T-shirt. To be clear, it's the kind of thing that's I, like we couldn't. It yeah, couldn't I want to be, be clear that I didn't. I don't suggest the sort of deracination of the debate. Right. What I do wonder, no. and this is a question for you, Jane, do you worry about the over-racialization of stuff? Uh, considering, yeah. you know, and again, I just did this um, special that that aired a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in Texas, and I've mentioned it a bunch in this podcast. And one of the things that I found interesting was what I imagine in the nineteen ni- early nineteen nineties was when you talk to the average person when they had these kind of culture war issues. <clears throat> They didn't really realize were culture war issues, but people would say, man, I can't believe I got to press one or two for, you know, English or Spanish. Mm-hmm. And you used to hear yeah. this all the time. And the same thing, it came up in the ATM. And now I actually heard this a number of times of people saying like, and there's actually one bit of it in the film of people saying like, every time I, you know, open a, you know, a target advertisement, it's like all oh, black people and gay couples. And it's the, it's the new version of this. Mm-hmm. And there are people that, that mm-hmm. whether or not it is smart, whether or not it is right, whether or not it is like sort of uncomfortable that people actually think these things. I do see so much of this backlash. And again, you can object to the reason for for people actually, you know, contributing to this backlash, but it does exist. And I think that some of the like, you know, constant, you know, we had a school debate, you know, you guys were talking about this before. And this is mm-hmm. overwhelming everybody, because now they have some sort of stake in it, right? It's not just a catalog. It's just my kids are being brainwashed. And it's just infecting everything. Do you worry in some sense that rather than sort of the deracination of things, that there is the over-racialization of things that is kind of turning people off both, you know, you know, lower middle class, middle class, white, black, et cetera? Can I pile, no. can I pile on quickly? Yes, please. Because um, I, I think, and, and actually you've given a short answer already, so what, I'm sure there's more <laughs> no, there to isn't it. So let me definitely pile on. <laughs> Mic drop. Um, the, the de-racinization, I, I, I think that there's, I think it's literally true that there's no one who wants to completely take race out of these conversations. Even me. And I am an extremist. <laughs> <laughs> like my my perspective on all of these issues is is very compatible with yours which is that these things are enormously complex like complex in ways that that in many instances just make it very difficult to solve these problems at all let alone to even talk about them in ways that are intelligible um and for me if i'm going to sort of cut to the quick it it becomes well how do i do something to help you effectively and while we worry a great deal about not talking about race enough, 
no one seems terribly concerned about whether or not we are talking about race too much. And Mm. it seems like rather obvious to me that we've actually polluted the culture with a great deal of nonsense about race and in precisely the ways that you seem to describe or allude to anyways in the Washington Post piece when you talk about the heterogeneity of blackness and how it's ignored, like the response of major media organizations to the racial reckoning um, is, every time I say it, I have to pause, um, is to capitalize the letter B in black. Like right. to, to literally flatten the world and 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 provide to everyone this this notion of kind of this sameness, this actual homogeneity as opposed to the heterogeneity. And it's the it's the AP and yes, the New York Times doing this while applauding themselves and making bold statements and pronouncements about the state of black people in this country that are just there is no uniform state of black people in this country. Mm-hmm. And even when we talk about historic things like redlining, we oversimplify it. Like it wasn't just impactful for black people. It may have been disproportionately impactful for them. But if you were a property owner in an area of Chicago that was impacted by redlining and you happened to not be black, like your property values went down. That hurt you materially. In the South, in the, during and post-slavery, like being white there the whole institution of slavery and the proliferation of racism hurt you materially. The, 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 re, the retarded development of the South as a consequence of racism in America, it hurt the entire country. And the proliferation of what I can only describe as a conspiracy theory about like white supremacy and its impact on America. And as Moynihan alluded to, the requirement that everything needs to be dismantled and then reassembled. Um, I think it's dangerous and dishonest because of the way it oversimplifies. And that is not us pulling race out of the conversation or talking about race too much. It's, it's literally overdosing on race. It's, it's possession and obsession with race to a dangerous degree that leads to all kinds of excesses that do concern me. So now I've piled on. I, I think that for one, th- I, I get lots of emails, people saying that we talk about race too much. Um, and I think that that is something that is always interesting to me because I think that like the I am speaking as a black person. I am fascinated by which is interesting. Come back to that. <laughs> yes, um, I am. I am fascinated by how best to put this. I'm fascinated by race, but I am fascinated by race as a positive construction. For instance, um, I've always been interested in my own, and I think that this is something that we're starting to get a little bit of, like, an idea of African-American history that is not just, like, first that first a horrible thing happened, and then that horrible thing happened for, like, 200 years, and then it was horrible, and then some other horrible stuff happened. And then horrible things happened again. And I think that that kind of flattening, I, I find disagreeable, though understandable. But I am interested in the history. I mean, it's the same way that, like, I'm fascinated by um, the how different American ethnic groups, um, like white adjacent ethnic groups, have risen and reshaped and rethought of themselves. I always think about the fact that when The Godfather came out in 1972, Italian-American organizations boycotted and picketed it. 
because they mm. thought it was an offensive depiction of Italian Americans and Can Italian I out, history. Do you know who ran that now, big like, organization? I think it was Joe Colombo, the head of the Colombo crime family. There was literally, literally an (laughs) anti-Italian defamation league run by the head of the mafia. It is, you cannot get better. As an Italian-American, I got to say, we are a group of total liars and scumbags. And that is the greatest example of all time. It's like, hey, what are you fucking doing? Why are you talking about us like that? Go go have him killed. I swear to God, this guy's fucking with us. I I, I think it was Joe Colombo, but but that is actually true. So continue. Sorry, Jay. See, now, this is a podcast just talking about that. Um, <laughs> I'm, inter- I'm interested in that kind of, inter- like, I think about the fact that, like, one of the things that uh, Marion Barry was first known for was picketing. Except, yeah. um, well, no, way before no, that. Right. In, like, before. 19... It would have been before, One yeah. of the things, it was, he had, I wrote a piece about him because he had this, like, such a weird, very specific relationship with DC. And, like... He was bringing food to people after the riots on each street in 67 and 68, but he was also picketing exploitation yeah. films because mm. he found them deeply offensive. He found mm-hmm. like Mario Van Peebles to be like one of the worst people who had ever sweet, existed. Sweetbacks, badass. Yeah. It's a great movie. Yeah. He, he found that to be like an offensive depiction. I'm interested in that kind of intra-group history in which, I mean, one of my, I have this idea that I would do a podcast and it would be called Black Beef and it would just be about like, how W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey just said progressively meaner things about each other. Like, Du Bois just, like, called Garvey, like, that disgusting little black man. And, like, <laughs> that kind of intra-group history that is of a racial group such as it exists, I'm fascinated by. But I also think that, like, for one thing, if, it, you know, with the work, I remember, when I, you know, the work that I've done in my previous life um, on marriage equality, I remember there was always this kind of like, well, what if we get married and there's a giant backlash? And I'm like, well, I'll be married. So life's tough for them. Like if they want to get mad about it, like I'm, I'm like, it's really, you know, if you want to, if you want to like, it turns out that like once a thing has happened, like there will always, there can always be like a corresponding anger rile whatever at it but like some like once the toothpaste is out of the tube it's kind of hard to bring it back and i think that in some ways i find concerns about backlash to be one of those things it's like vaguely concerned trolly i found this mostly like i don't think that that's obviously what's happening here but i remember that being some a big thing that people who were allegedly well-meaning wrote in like 2013 2014 about marriage equality like well you know what what if the fight over marriage equality actually leads to LGBT people losing rights? And I was like, well, that could only happen if, like, people, you know, go to, like, at, at a certain, like, it's very difficult to do that legally. And the idea of, like, trying, in some ways, putting that forward so that felt kind of like people were kind of cheerleading for it, like, oh, no. Wouldn't it be terrible if we tried to bring back the Defense of Marriage Act even after it was found to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court? Like, <laughs> and so I'm like, what are you doing here? Like, there's a kind of like, I under, I think that in some ways, looking for backlash or thinking about that, especially on polling questions. Um, this is a side note because I, all I can do is talk in segues. But um, <laughs> is I, I was interested because people are like, oh, the polling on Black Lives Matter has decreased since last year. And I think that, that for one thing, 
polls in general are not great reflections of how people think about things. They are in some ways, but for better or for worse, how people want you to know they think about a thing. And also, historically, like if you go back to uh, Gallup polling that was done um, in the 1940s and early 1950s of white people about um, what they thought, what they thought the state of race relations was, they were like, oh, it's good. State of race relations is good. Like things are good. Everything's fine. What could be the possibly the problem? And then they're like, you know, you just go later and they're talk. They are asked about um, civil rights issues and stuff like that. And obviously, they're in general opposition, uh, specifically to like interracial marriage or that conceit or desegregating schools or something like that. But it is interesting to me how these questions become about like, well, how is this perceived? How is this positioned? And I'm aware that is in you know. If my job were about, like, trying to get people onto the side of my particular politics, I would be concerned about that. But one of the joys of my job is, and, like, something that I talked to uh, Nick Gillespie about at Reason, is that I have spent my entire life in areas and venues in which no one shared my politics. And I, everybody who I ever liked always lost in things like, you, <laughs> you know, growing up in a, like a liberal household in Southern Ohio in the early 1990s. I remember when issue three passed in 1993 and it was in Cincinnati and it was pushed by the citizens for community values an organization that always, when you hear those three words together, you think only good things can come from this, but it was a <laughs> ban on any ever passing non-discrimination legislation in the city of Cincinnati. And I remember distinctly, I was I very precocious. I started reading the newspaper very early and I would have been about six or seven when that passed. And even then I remember thinking, this is going to be bad for me. And I feel bad inside when I see these stories because I know in some way that I don't truly understand that they're talking about me. And I think that that experience of existing in a world in which like whether it was LGBT issues or being biracial or something like that, there's always been a moment where I was like, I've never had in many respects, the majority opinion on anything. And my opinion has very rarely been reflected in the broader politic. And I'm fine with that. That's absolutely fine. It is not my, like, my job is not to get everybody on board with, like, what if we talk about under and over policing? Like, like, you know, if we eventually someday get the Supreme Court to take up qualified immunity, I'll be thrilled. And what if they maybe even rule that it's bad after inventing it? That would be cool, too. But, like, I think for me, the concern, like, I am not that, like, the idea of a backlash... I think is something like, I am not saying it would not happen. I am saying that I am not concerned about it. But what if it's not backlash? What if it's obfuscation, which is actually my concern? I'm not concerned about the backlash. Like, I don't think we're going to have a race war or that white people are just going to, you know, become like super awful. I think think the obfuscation, though, is material. Like, it's funny it, to me. It is when, the case uh, that people, people don't understand kind of, police and police violence. Right. Like they believe that more people are actually killed than are actually killed. They believe that black right. people are at greater jeopardy than are actually than are actually at jeopardy. And as was underscored with Tony Tempa, they don't even know what happened to him. And that is the concern that there is 
an underappreciation for the severity and the depth of particular kinds of dysfunctions. And rather than grapple with the complexity, we latch on to a profound oversimplification that doesn't even get us close to a remedy. And instead, it just gets us to, well, it's systemic. We have to destroy everything. Don't you see? Like, there's no fixing it. I mean, it. when have we it ever, must be though, destroyed. I mean, when given choices, it's like that Simpsons episode where Mark McGuire is like, well, do you want to learn the truth or do you want to see me hit some dingers? <laughs> like, we always are like, well, we could wrangle yeah. with complexity or we could not. But it's not fun do watching that. Mark McGuire hit dingers. But that's dingers. the question. It's true. It's not fun wrangling no. with complexity. <laughs> but, but that's and the I question, that, though. Like, that's that the that question. That's, like, what do we do about this? Like, isn't, isn't, aren't you acknowledging then? that the that there is at a minimum a potential problem if not an actual problem which i think there is with thinking about or talking about race if not too much in the wrong way too much i mean of course i mean i think that but then the response needs to be to talk about it in the right way mm -hmm. and like i, I think this goes back to <laughs> Uh, the back and forth we had about that uh, that fair document. One of the things was um, the thing that I pointed out because I find it to be very funny. Mm, it's good, yeah. <clears throat> um, so one of the things I pointed out is that this document um, it argued that um, this that I believe a a race a racial curriculum um, that I'm sure someone said was critical race theory, but it, whatever. Anyway. Yeah, it's it's so a it, long it's a long it's a, letter, and it's, it's specifically about the federal government's um, right. creating yes, incentives it, for people to embrace or teach particular yeah. kinds of things, which are kind of aligned with some nebulous cloud of bad ideas that are described as r critical race theory by some people. But I, yes. I don't I don't think the letter made that no, generalization no. error. Um, in, in fact, so I think it's what it, the thing I was fascinated by was a couple of things. So there's under, uh, I believe it's section four, pri uh, priority one will result in psychological harm and division. Mm -hmm. And it said that, um, it quoted, and I'll quote here, a 2021 study showed that black Americans <laughs> who read a single passage of yeah. Ta-Nehisi Coates experienced a 15-point drop in feelings of personal empowerment to control over their lives. Yeah. Um, it's a Manhattan I Institute study. Yeah. yeah, I looked up the study itself and the quote mm -hmm. itself is from a uh, Tanahasi -Nehisi Coates's a letter to his son mm -hmm. about race and racism and it's fascinating because someone looked into it and it was like apparently there was a group it had no effect on um and it's interesting to me that there was like oh a 2019 article in Scientific American set forth that people who are deliberately shamed are more likely like this idea that like if we, if you've read any of this, for for one thing, giving Tanahasi Coates this level of power is kind mm -hmm. of incredible to me. But also the, I mean, it gets to this polling question. Um, race, racial relations in the U.S. have steadily deteriorated as more and more schools have been teaching comments of inherent inherent racial oppression, which they um they use like oh there's a Gallup poll from 2014 and then a Gallup poll uh from to in which 43 percent of respondents say they worry about race relations. That figure climbed each subsequent year to the whopping 73% it is today, which, for one thing, implies that, like, I'm not sure I would be interested to know the ages of the people being polled, but mm -hmm. I have a feeling that there was a lot happening between 2014 and 2021 that may have changed how some people thought about race relations. And the idea that, like, 
It was how people learned about race in school. But like, mm-hmm. it really gets to this idea, and I've been thinking about it a lot, this idea that like, this is the, and I, Michelle Goldberg also made the point that like, this is the exact same argument about trigger warnings or something like that. That like, if you read a single passage of a thing that offends you, you will never recover. Like this, if we flipped around some of the quotes here, the idea would be that like, if you read any of Huck Finn, you'll never recover. <laughs> you'll never come back after reading Lady Chowderley's Lover. Like, you'll, and I, I thought that that was such like an interesting thing because it was just this, seemed, this argument that like, this one... This yeah. piece here seemed to be an implication for one thing when we're thinking about education and what kids learn like when we're thinking about ideas that you learn about and you know I said that I don't understand the we can't teach things that might make kids feel better argument granted I went to catholic school where um I went to catholic school for 13 years and I will say and I mean this objectively there's a lot of things you learn in catholic school that make you feel bad pretty much everything. that was kind of like that's one thing. It's a pretty. Uh, <laughs> that's basically it. You know, you feel bad, and that that's good because you should feel bad because of orig- original sin. And yes, Jesus Christ died for you, but like he had to die for you because you did it. The, you the, the, did it. What I learned about so the existence I, of Catholic schools, which uh, was very important in the public school dominated area where I grew up, is that that's where you'd go buy. Oh, weed. is that right? Um, the, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Nobody was telling me weed. Yep. Those, the, can, the Catholic yeah. school kids were always on the, the worst, on, by far. Can I sharpen something about the FAIR document quickly, yes. just while we're on that topic? Um, and, yes. then, and I'll let you in, Moynihan. The, the FAIR document, the poll, I think, is questionable. Like, I, I would not have included that sort of thing in something I was writing about, certainly not without understanding it better. I, I had immediately, immediate questions about that. I think the criticism is on numbers, like fair about that particular point but the broader point that's being made here isn't so much that there is a fear or concern about harming kids because they're just encountering you know these different ideas it's twofold it's one that there is a push in some places to make curriculums critical race theory compatible again using somewhat nebulous phrase and that the actual manifestation of that is cultivating particular kinds of racial essentialist sentiments among children, that white kids are generally privileged, that black kids are gen- generally disadvantaged, and that inculcating those beliefs in kids via the curriculum and essentially making, you know, cr- turning people into advocates for anti-racism like as a, a matter of policy in these school systems that that this is you know good and acceptable like there are people who think that is not good and acceptable and that is the actual dispute i think there are certainly people who get this all wrong um and i, I think chris rufo at some point will be on the podcast and we'll talk about you know his project um and the laws that he's trying to get passed in certain places mm-hmm. specifically targeting critical race theory mm-hmm. which i think are misguided um, yeah, and especially but because I, but right I just now think we're it's having, important to, yeah, just we're having it a moment in which in it's like, um, I was just looking that there is a uh, a community college teacher who just had her class canceled mm-hmm. because uh, Oklahoma decided they're just preemptively canceling classes that have to do with 
race and ethnicity because reasons. Um, yeah. For one no, thing, it's like, materially I think different that- to like talk about Nicole Hannah Jones 1619 Project in class. I think kids should encounter this work and talk about it. Right. But the question is one of of you know. Uh, um, a, it, the question is way more complicated than education. what people. The, the question is actually like quite complex in that like one what are kids i think that there are are so many different pieces to this because there are the people who are like we have to ban the 1619 project and i'm like the whole thing like the piece about atlanta's highways the thing about candy the thing about medical discrimination um they never mean that they mean like the opening essay because Mm -hmm. they mean that like the the opening essay and that's generally it then there is what we have to ban critical race theory but what aspect of it are you going to because i think that there i mean this is why i think that like what people should actually be doing and is like high schools and colleges actually talking about like Derek bell because i disagree with interest convergence i think that the because his entire con- one he was largely dismissive of the conceit of the first amendment but also his idea in part was that the reason that the civil rights movement had some of the achievements that it did, and he argues that many of those were not actual achievements, was because the United States wanted to look better in the fight with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And so he thinks that non-discrimination laws were essentially like a canard, and that these Mm -hmm. were, instead of dealing with material differences and essentially like capitalism, the United States was like, we're going to hit some dingers and pass the Civil Rights Act. You know, I think that on the 1619 Um, thing, and we've talked about it um, quite a bit, and, you know, I I tend to agree with Camille on this, that these laws, I mean, I'm, I'm, my skin crawls when anyone wants to pass laws about, you know, what people should teach. Mm -hmm. The thing that would make this easier is that nobody in this debate wants to debate I mean, on the 1619 side, I have not seen Nicole Hannah-Jones actually have a significant debate with somebody who is, you know, not an ideologue, somebody like Gordon Wood, who is one of the most, you know, eminent historians of the American Revolution, and a man of the left, too, um, but not that that really matters in this context. Um, And, you know, I know that everyone does focus on that essay because the essay is basically the name of the project. The name of the project sounds as if we're talking entirely about America's founding and what is the quote unquote real American founding. So, I mean, it would be great if anybody wanted to debate, debate this stuff rather than, you know, blocking people on Twitter and, you know, insulting people and then going on right wing shows and left wing shows, et cetera, and uh, talking in, in this echo chamber, because this is what history is about, right? Historians debate things. And I know that Nicole Hannah Jones is an historian, but when you're playing one on TV, you should at least put the lab coat on. You should at least pretend that you're going to go out there and debate these issues, because that's what historiography is about. And there's so many of these sharp debates in European history and American history, which you can read the letters back and forth and go onto YouTube and watch these old debates that were on C-SPAN that are pretty fascinating and edifying when you actually have people engaging in these debates. And And on the backlash thing, I just wanted to add one thing to go backwards a little bit, is that, you know, the ultimate backlash that people talk about and why I think it's an important um, conversation, and I'm not saying I agree with this because I actually don't agree with it, but the ultimate backlash is the election of Donald Trump. 
it's not a sort of moderate, mild thing. It's like we got this kind of reformation in the negative way of the Republican Party and stuck with this psychopathic president for four years that fundamentally remade the country. In, and this is not my argument. Fundamentally remade the country and remade the party. And that's because people were fed up with this sort of thing. Where you see that actually happening, because <clears throat> I don't think that's actually what happened in 2016 entirely in these elements of it. But go to Europe. In the, the, the change in European politics in the past 10, 15, 20 years is astonishing. In that, in certain places, like the place I used to live in Sweden, you can directly tie to the conversation about immigration and about the migrant you know, crisis that hit, particularly in 2015. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, parties that were literally started by neo-Nazis, this is the case in Sweden, in progressive Sweden, is now the second, and depending on which poll, sometimes the most popular party in Sweden. They, there was a cordon sanitaire that prevented them from having any media access. Nobody would work with them. And the more this was pushed, the more popular they became. And so I worry in the backlash sense that this will have enormous ramifications rather than sort of small, subtle ones. And people are like, well, I got to press one or two on the on the uh, telephone to, to select Spanish, Spanish or English, is that it will remake parties, it will remake ideologies, it will make everyone essentially go insane. And I and again, I don't think there's an either or proposition. You don't have to stop talking about things. But I, that's that is my worry about the over racialization uh, of things. But I just wanted to Go, I'm sorry to go backwards on I that, think, but that I was think the, the, the European the, thing was kind of the thing that, that the sticks place, in there. The place where uh, it becomes tangible, and it's already tangible, um, obviously because we're talking about it, is in particularly in public schools. Um, and something I've been writing about and experiencing for the last couple of years, um, and you're starting to see spread throughout uh, the country, is um, this kind of marinating in uh, in uh, discussions of constant systemic uh, racism and uh, talk about segregation. Every school meeting um, that I've attended, including last week or two weeks ago, um, is just about like we how we need to desegregate the schools in Brooklyn and how we have to uh, break up the zones of white privilege. And like it becomes a lot on on the ears. And even prior to covid, there's been uh, in, in places that have introduced this notion of controlled choice, which is an interesting uh, kind of euphemism in which it's like managed um, democracy uh, entrance to <laughs> controlled choice, <laughs> uh, uh, managerial capitalism. But like it's uh, it, it it makes uh, uh, enrollments and admissions more more of a lottery, and the and kind of uh, you control it based on you want a, a better kind of demographic uh, leveling or balancing within a system, which they've gone to. In my district was the was the uh, uh, forerunner of that in New York. Now they're doing that for all of middle schools. And what happened when they made that change here is that 7% uh, a year over year decline in enrollment. Um, uh, the backlash against uh, the, the actual desegregation of schools um, was uh, yeah, obviously very infamous uh, in, mm-hmm. in the United States and reshaped cities, reshaped all kinds of things in politics. It's not going to be like that this time, um, but COVID um, and the, the reaction uh, specifically in, in uh, blue states and blue cities of having uh, schools not very open um, is uh, has pushed a lot of people into homeschooling, has pushed people into uh, private school. Um, that uh, uh, impact on cities, I think, is underrated right now of, of what that is going to look like. I think those two factors and COVID will be, by I think, by far the bigger factor. Um, but uh, but to the extent which, uh, you know, being an active 
a, a parent in school systems like this is going to kind of bombard you with that uh, that language and and uh, thoughts that are behind it. Um, uh, it's not that people are going to rise up and become a different person, um, but at some point they're going to put on really big headphones uh, and they're just going to they're going to seek out places where that's not the constant uh, conversation is my prediction. Uh, and, and by the way, to clarify, I was Jake. correct. It was uh, mm. Joe Colombo. Um, who ran the Italian American <laughs> Civil Rights That's League? So awesome. And to Jane's point, uh, this is actually true. They successfully, successfully uh, secured an agreement from uh, Albert S. Ruddy, the producer of The Godfather, to omit the terms mafia and Cosa Nostra <laughs> from the film's dialogue. It succeeded in, and succeeded that in having awesome. Macy's stop selling a board game called The Godfather Game. This is an organization run by fucking Joe Colombo. It is genius. It is the, the greatest moment in American history. I, I, I wonder how they really achieved <laughs> oh, yeah, those, those goals. Um, yeah. Jane, Jane, a lot of horse your, heads. A lot of horse heads. Jane, your stereotypes are too late. They're disgusting. The Enough. <laughs> the Nick Gillespie theory about mafia movies, I think, is, is absolutely correct, which is that you can tell uh, an ethnic group or a block of people, uh, nationality, has uh, finally been absorbed into the mainstream when they get their own uh, mafia movie. Right. So like that was the moment yeah. that Italians made it is mm. when they got there. The Cubans yeah. made it with Scarface, mm. uh, maybe American Gangster, although that probably doesn't fit in the timeline. But like uh, everyone has to have their moment when the they ethnic get the ethnic organized uh, crime uh, movie. mafia movie. So, so Jane, how are you on time? Because I know you had another thing, and I don't remember. Um, I think I can I'm... go for probably for another like five minutes or so. Okay. Is that well, let's. 10? Is that okay? Yeah. So, so, so let's uh, let's let's bring this thing in for a landing. And obviously, as as with every one of our exchanges, I I have enjoyed having you as a guest on the podcast. And I am upset that we don't have more time because there's so much more stuff that I want to talk to you about. Um, but I think you've just endured a, a litany of uh fifth columnist stuff i i suspect you probably have some perhaps some closing parting insights that you might want to share uh in the context of that but if not i've, I've definitely got some specific questions for you that i'll pepper you i with. mean i i think I, I i'm more interested in your questions because i think that oh. for me um it's interesting also because Matt brought up uh, school desegregation in New York, and that's actually Nicole Hannah-Jones, like the first piece mm -hmm. that she became yes. very mm -hmm. known mm -hmm. for was choosing a school for my daughter in a segregated city. And that is something that I think that like, it's interesting how, I mean, this gets to like DEI stuff, how much of the white privilege conversation became about like kind of like a therapeutic understanding mm. of like, not like you got to unpack your backpack or something like that instead of like... <laughs> Why, like, why, why are these schools like that? Like, in a materialist way. But um, I'm interested. What are your questions? Um, well, I have two categories of questions, so I'll, mm -hmm. I'll ask them both quickly. Um, I wondered when you used the phrase marriage equality, which is one mm -hmm. that we all know, what like a marriage equity scheme might have looked like oh, if man. that was the way the issue was approached in the same way that we're beginning to approach racial yeah, issues five from an equity standpoint, which I think is <laughs> grotesque. But you don't have to necessarily answer French that. You can submit that answer in there. print later. But, but, <laughs> let me, but, let me, but, but here's the other one. <laughs> the written Self, State of the Union address. Here's the other one. Self-identity. You've mm -hmm. described yourself variously in this mm -hmm. conversation as biracial and mm -hmm. black. Mm -hmm. And I would submit to you that both of those things are sort of the same kind of contrivance. And I wonder about the decision 
to elect either of them. Mm -hmm. And if there's been anything else that you've considered when you thought about like self-identification and community membership, et cetera, right. et cetera. I think, um, so answer your second question first. Um, yeah. And you don't even have to one, mess with the first comes, one if you don't want to. <laughs> when it comes to self-identification, I think about this a lot. Um, so for instance, uh, I, I was thinking about how like, some of it just goes to like we need more words, like we need a, a wider variety of words. Mm. And I think it's very important to me that I am biracial. Like I am the ch the child of a parent whose ancestry goes back to Croatia and to um, Scotland and Ireland, and more recently to Appalachia. Um. I used to joke with my mom that basically the white side of my family is just us being gently pushed out of every country we ever came from. <laughs> just being like, would you please go? But like, shoo-shoo. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Um, and then also the descendant of um, Sally and Oscar Coaston, uh, the my grandparents and the black side of my family. Um, my grandfather fought in a segregated unit at um, in the Normandy invasion. He served in a balloon barrage mm. unit, which mm -hmm. was incredibly dangerous because their job was to distract Nazi mm -hmm. fire from above. Jeez. And um, he, my grandmother was among the first black people to work in the Pentagon. And it's not the only black um, unit that, that and, uh, served in, in the invasion of Normandy. Yeah, there was one. Yeah. And, and your, your yeah. grandfather was, was yeah, a part of that. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Um, he's, we've got, there's a book about his yeah. unit, and it is, I'm looking at it right now, and it is called forgotten which is it's always a fantastic and they only recently um actually i think it was president obama who uh honored the last surviving members yeah. of that unit because they were basically pushed out of history in many ways um and my grandfather also um he his event like at a certain point during that invasion the boat he was on was blown up and so he had to swim in and that is the only time in his life he ever swam. He never oh swam again, and he had never swam before. But it wow. turns out when he absolutely had, and this was always something that my, like my, um, this was something he just was like, I'll never do that again. He never really mm -hmm. talked. To, like there's that era of mm -hmm. World War II people, um, people who had survived that, who were like, I did that thing. I came home and I'll never discuss it again. Like he gave yeah. his bronze stars to his kids to play with because he was like, these mean nothing to me. This means absolutely nothing to me. I never want to discuss it again. He died in uh, 1968, and my grandmother um, passed away in 2015. But she basically, you know, her uh, her childhood home and their farm was burned down by the Klan. But her mother told her, like, don't let this make you start hating people because that hate will take you like a weed. Mm. Because that's how people talked in rural Georgia. Um, how Effect Baptist people. Eloquently, yeah. beautifully. Yeah, beautifully. Uh, that's how Baptist people, you know, you just, you, every, like, and so that's something, mm. like that lineage, I am incredibly proud to be part of, not as a story of, like, people who endured oppression, but people who survived mm -hmm. and thrived. You know, my grandmother mm -hmm. got... After my uh, grandfather passed away, she got all three kids, not just through college, but all of them went to grad school. Yeah. And 
Then she basically became the person at the church that she helped to desegregate who knew absolutely everything about everyone and then told my mom about it, who then told me about it, which was very helpful to just be like, I know everything about all these random people who are adults, which always is a nice relation, a nice power. And, you know, the power dynamics got to shift there. But um, I think that that for me, it's very important, especially because I've been thinking a lot about um, uh, one of the interesting things about biracial identity, specifically people who are half African-American, half Caucasian, is an interesting unity that's not based on a lineage but actually in many ways based in some ways on appearance. And I'll explain what I mean. When I was a kid, the only other biracial person I knew was my older sister. And now with the rise of uh, interracial marriage and more mixed race kids, I now know more people who are biracial. And the number of times where I've been with someone who is biracial and people look at us like, oh, it's so nice that you're here with your sister. And I'm like, we are not at all related. Not at all. But it is a unity based purely on being light-skinned, kind of having similar hair to me, and then, like, lightish eyes sometimes. Sometimes darker, sometimes lighter. And I've always been fascinated by that, especially because uh, traditionally, historically, uh, mixed-race communities in America, uh, most specifically in New Orleans, have been very much positioned as, like, we are not this and we're not that. We are this different thing, and we are brought together by somewhat in new orleans sometimes lineage being creole but also by like this recognition of being this different thing and i've always been fascinated by that and i don't i never want to lose touch with that but i think of that as being like a fascinating aspect of myself not as a like i am x ergo x happens it is more of a like this is an interesting thing that i'm fascinated by about myself and it's something I always want to learn more about, about the history of, like, mulatto, mixed-race, biracial identity in America. Especially, like, the con- the concept of passing and how much that was something that was available to some people but not available to others and who could do it and who couldn't. And I think that that's why I identify in those various ways. But I also recognize that, like, if you look at me... And when I've been in other countries where there aren't, when I am in another country, um, my husband's from New Zealand, and when I've been in New Zealand, and you see another clear, like, another black American, we do the, like, the head nod of just, like, we are here, we are very far away from where we are actually from, but we like, there's a moment of recognition there, and I've always found that to be heartening. And I mm-hmm. think that that's something that... Oh, mm-hmm. I, that is something that I enjoy. And it's interesting because I think that that is something that has nothing to do with whether or not we have experienced the same thing or we have the same opinions or anything like that. That is based purely on this, like, this identi- like this appearance marker. And it's, it's interesting when you do something that you're like, I'm not sure, quite sure why I do that. And if I interrogated this more, I'd be like, oh, that's interesting that, like, I am largely, I object to the conceit of the community mm. part, but there is something about the, like, the, you you like things that are like you yeah. in general. No, try, and I think try. that that is something I find appealing. Yeah. And as to your first question about oh. equity, oh, I think that something that we, when, when we're talking about um, 
marriage equality. I something I, I I facts that I've always been fascinated by is that do you know the state with the highest number of same sex couples raising children? If you had to guess. Um, no, like but high, I, I, like guess it, I, I guess it's in the highest percentage of people. I'd guess it's in the I mean, the, the obvious guess would be Massachusetts. It is. But apparently that's not correct. Yeah. <laughs> Mississippi. Yeah, I guess it's in the South because there were huge really? rates it's, of interracial marriage there because the populations are of, of, of minority groups there are, were always historically pretty large. But this large. is same-sex couples. Same-sex couples yeah. raising children. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's Mississippi. And that was, this is, I think this is an older study from like 2010. But that was about like 10 to 11% of same-sex couples in Mississippi were raising children. And I think that that was something that during the marriage fight was like, it was interesting because when you, I remember I went down right after Roy Moore decided that he single-handedly was going to stand in the schoolhouse door and decide that people couldn't get married in the state of Alabama. And I remember being in a room with like a group, like lesbian couples and their kids and they were like, they had been told we're going to be able to get married today. And then they were told, like, absolutely, you can't. And the looks on mm. their faces of just like, mm. how fucking dare you? Like, I, I was just like, if it, it was one of those moments where I've just been like, if these women, like, the, the anger in that room could have, like, we, you know, we could have just, we, we could go off cold right now because that anger in that room was just palpable. And I think that that is how there's a way in which we talked about marriage in that debate, which I think was mostly due to circumstance where it became very much a like, we're just like you. Don't you want these like nice white people who are like they're very stable and they're going to do the right thing and they deserve to get married. And the way we talked about that. Especially in, and like, you know, we see this all the time. This is, you know, when you put rights up before courts, in general, you're picking and choosing cases. Like it's, you want this case to be put forth, you know, you want Juma Bergefell to go before the Supreme Court because what he wants is to be buried next to his husband and he needs a marriage certificate in order to do so, um, so that he can be buried next to his husband in the state of, in the state of Ohio. And you, because like even that, I wrote speeches for HRC and I wrote speeches for him. Um, and every time I like had to write a speech about this, like you are at, you are, this man was forced to go through like the most painful thing you could possibly imagine the slow decline in death of his husband um, due to ALS. And you're asked to put forth these very specific stories to courts. And you are, you're asked to, like, talk about this specific group of people in this specific group of way. And I think, like, an equity argument would have been, like, we don't really ask, like, when we're thinking about marriage, it was, you know, you see the same thing every time where you're kind of, like, you go back to 2013, 2014. And the implication was, that, like, well, are these people, do they even want to get married? Are they good enough to get married? What if they get married, but they're not? you know, monogamous. What if they get married and they cheat? What if they get married and they're like, their kids are weird? What if they, like, and it's just like these questions that were asked of like a specific group of people that aren't, that weren't asked of straight people. Cause you know, when you have like Newt Gingrich talking about the defense of marriage, I'm like, I don't want to hear it from Newt. And I, so I think that that is how an equity argument 
would have been is just thinking about this in a way of like, here is what this vast, well, not vast, but how, how this large community of people who all look very different, who all were approaching this in a very different way, who, you know, you had, you know, black couples in Mississippi who had been, you know, they've been raising kids and they took in kids that, you know, were the children of relatives, but in order, like, they weren't sure how to get best get benefits and they weren't sure what to do. And they, like, marriage was the way that they could access not just, like, express their love for one another, but access real material changes to how their lives worked. And I think that that is how I would have answered, like, an equity question, where it wasn't just, like, see these nice people? They should be able to get married. It was about, this is what this means. This is what this, lo- this, is what this means to people who don't look anything like you, who aren't mm. anything like you, who vote very differently from you, who maybe don't vote at all, as millions of Americans don't, who are, who experience this entirely differently, but they want to do this thing. They want to do this thing. And whether or not you like them doing that thing, like, whatever, there are lots of people who get married, and I'm like, okay. But, like, I would never be like, I'm going to go to court and say you can't do it. So I think that, that that is the best way I could come up with that that argument. Ladies and gentlemen, libertarian rising star, yeah. New York Times podcast host, Jane Coaston. Thank you for joining us again, Jane. I, I look Thank forward you. to uh, to round round four at some point. Yeah, you're the. Yeah. At, let me say part four because round has four anyone, makes it sound like we're fighting. Has anyone this been is on more like times? Fast and the Furious? That is what yeah. I think is going ben on. Dreyfus. Um, ben Dreyfus. Ben Dreyfus. Ben Dreyfus. Yeah. Ben Dreyfus for sure. Barry. Yeah. There, there, there's this. It's, it's an club. it's an elite yeah. elite group. And uh, I'm glad to induct you into it, Jane. Oh, thank, thank you, you. For, uh, for coming. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, at the end sure, of it, all, I just want to say something because I know if I say this, that people Uh-oh. will give Uh-oh. me an enormous amount of credit. They're going to call you They racist. will hear it and they'll be like, God, he's a good person. Because I just wanted to say, Jane, that you know, I don't <laughs> see color. Um, I just, I don't know if anyone's ever said that in the past, um, but I just, I, I'm just, it's mad, it's a joke. So I, you're, I am you're actually, colorblind? Because yeah, they make glasses I, now for that. Yeah, they make glasses yeah. now for that. I, I, I had a friend who got that from I didn't his even dad know your racial identity because I buy computer monitors that are just black <laughs> and white. So they just flatten everybody because I don't yeah. want to see color. I, That's who I am. I, get, I, I, will quote, I will quote myself from earlier today. Um, I, I, I loathe like, this notion of colorblindness. I like it better than like race essentialism. But I do not like it better than no. like reality, and the the project to like transcend or abolish race, like that is my project. Like I I could give two shits about it. Like and I think we need to find ways to reckon with like what racecraft actually does in the world. And I think a lot of it is is Camille. Are you the John Brown uh, or are you the William Lloyd Garrison of racial abolitionism? <laughs> I, I think I'm a little more. I think I'm a little more John Brown. I want to make the, glo- the gallows glorious, like the cross, and I might pull you out your goddamn house in like, the middle of the night. Also, I will say that John Brown, despite being John Brown, had way less beef mm. than William Lloyd. Oh, Garrison. he fought with everybody. William Lloyd Garrison, they, and they ended up each other. John Brown also identified it. Also identified as black. He called himself amazing. a black man. It's a true yep, story. Yeah, yeah, yep. but I, I will say Rachel Dolezal. I will say that my favorite quote is that, uh, you know, 
Frederick Douglass asked, the true question is, uh, did he lose his life in vain? And to this I answer 10,000 times no. No man fails or can fail who so grandly gives himself and all he has to a righteous yeah. cause. Wow. Come on, man. Come on, It's a man. banger. The, the, oh, yeah. Come on. John yeah, Brown the is South- that... John Brown the is South that nigga, okay? all, Yeah. <laughs> it's true. The South staked all upon getting possession of the federal government and failing to do that, drew the sword of rebellion and thus Ugh. made her own and not Brown's the lost cause of the, 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 the greatest The greatest painting of all time like, is on the Kansas State House. The tragic prelude where oh, yeah. he's and it's literally him, yeah, a and it Bible just, in yeah, one hand and, and I, a gun in the other. He's like, you going to fuck with me? You want to fuck with me? Okay. <laughs> he's my dude. That's my dude. That's my dude. Um, okay. I'm right. going to, I've got a Thank quick you. time recording going. Do you guys need that? You don't. No, we're good. We got, okay. I think, I'm well, gonna I'll, tell you if, I'll tell you if also, I do, but I think we're good. Yeah, when you, when we um, stop the recording. Don't close out yet. Is, okay. You want to stop it now so it uploads and we make sure, yeah, okay, you know this. You oh, know I, this. Know. I, I, will. Yeah, I know. I will. Yeah, I know, I know. We use Riverside too. Let me, let me stop oh. it in the, can I stop yeah. it in the right yeah. way, the way we usually do? Yes. Bye. 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 We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The fifth.